Welcome back to Conservation Chronicles. This is Mariana here with my co-host Jonah. How's it going, Jonah? Um. Okay. Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah. Uh, nothing crazy to report. <laughs> other than, do you know what chiggers are? Yes. Have you ever got chigger bites? I don't think I've gotten the bites, but I've heard of them. I did not know that there were chiggers in New Jersey. In New Jersey? And I just went to New Jersey this weekend for a family reunion. And I have chigger bites as bad as when I went to Belize. Oh, God. Oh, no. So I look like it, like I have some <laughs> horrible disease like leprosy or something. <laughs> Anyways, that's about what's new with me. What's new with you? Yeah. Um, no, um, no bugs or other such stinging or biting creatures, but um, we did have a mouse in our house. Yeah. That, um, <laughs> yeah. So, and I was like, Matt was like, I, you're way too happy about this, first of all. <laughs> and um he wanted so we went and got a have a heart to trap it and um i you know i was a little overconfident on my um my ability to predict whether he would come back depending on where i released him and i released him too near and um he came back and yeah and so the the other time the last time we uh, we had to catch him three times. The third time we caught him, I finally was like, all right, I'm going to take him across the canyon. So I had to walk all the way around, took him across the canyon, and I haven't seen him since. So either either little Fievel is dead or I did a good job. Fievel? Did yeah. he go west? <laughs> yeah, I named him Fievel. Anyway, so that was, that was, that's it. That's, um, that's my rodent news for the day. That's funny. Yeah. Um, well, got a couple pieces of news today. Mm-hmm. Um, both kind of downers. Yeah. Um, mine is, is actually really tragic. Um, so a, a forest ranger named Bienvenido uh, Toto... Gia Jr. Hopefully that's how you say his name. That's pretty good. Um, simply just went by his like nickname was Toto. Um, he was murdered by illegal loggers on the Philippine island of Palawan on September 5th. And so sort of the, the story is um, Toto and five other rangers were, came upon men that were illegally cutting logs within a protected area and then the suspects fled and they got away. And, but then later the day in that day, while the Rangers were patrolling, they encountered the suspects again. And, but the loggers were armed with a shotgun and machetes this time. And so the other five Rangers escaped, but Toto was cornered and hacked to death with machetes, which is horrific. And only two last I read, only two of the five suspects were arrested and um, police also found two truckloads of timber near the site where he was murdered. Um, And so this Toto is the 18th sort of what they call environmental defender, which 
is basically someone who's in the conservation field. The 18th environmental defender killed on Palawan Island since 2001. And just between 2001 and 2018, 223 conservation-related people were killed in the Philippines due to conflict like this with environmental criminals like poachers or loggers or miners. And because of this, the Philippines has been ranked as the deadliest country for those trying to protect the environment. Yeah. Um, So that's like, that's super tragic. And um, also kind of relevant because we were talking about the Philippines last time. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's always upsetting to hear. It's gotten, I mean, we've said this before, but, you know, nations that have a lot of political strife tend to be, you know, among the most difficult for conservation work. And, you know, a lot of people put themselves in danger. Um, so my my news is also a downer. And but this actually comes from my own backyard, practically. Uh, so I live near the Valles Cabrera National Preserve, the VCMP, which is up here in northern New Mexico near Los Alamos and Hemis Springs. It's basically um, what they call a supervolcano. It's this huge caldera um, and the mountains, including um, the mountains that, yeah, and the mountains. Anyway, so a federal judge recently has ruled against the Hemis Pueblo, who are the indigenous, um, the indigenous Pueblo people here. Um, who used to inhabit this large swath of land, a federal just, judge just ruled against their claim of ownership over the VCMP, which right now obviously belongs to the National Park Service. So uh, the history of how land was taken from Native American nations and tribes is fraught with injustice in our country. So I was not surprised to receive to, to hear this news. I didn't know anything about this this court case until I saw the news. Um, so what happened was in 1860, the U.S. government conveniently claimed that the land was vacant, which it clearly was not. And at the time, the land belonged to the Hemis Pueblo people. But when it was declared vacant by the United States government, they, they gave it over to private landowners. And it was in their hands until the year 2000. So relatively recently. And at that, at that point, the current landowners who own the land sold it to the federal government for $101 million. So they made a pretty penny off of it. And the federal government then put it under the purview of the National Park Service. It became a national preserve. And the basic claim of the Hemis Pueblo people is that the land, their, their aboriginal title to the land was never extinguished lawfully, uh, which it's pretty obvious, but our New Mexico district judge, James O. Browning, disagreed and ruled against them. The Hemis Pueblo people still use this land. It's sacred to them. I've actually met some of these Pueblo people. They're really awesome. But their their access to the land has been restricted ever since the Park Service took over it. Um, I, I, I never get the full story, obviously, because I know a lot of rangers who do express a lot of respect for the people. But of course, you know, I just don't know, you know, there's the ranger and then there's the system. So um, it just seems like it's been pretty contentious, more contentious than I realized. And so now, now that 
they've it's been ruled now that the judge ruled against them i i'm i'm assuming it'll go to an appeals court and maybe even eventually they'll try to take it to the supreme court and i'm i'm really hoping them i'm really hoping they win um as in terms as far as the wildlife here you know we have what they call a, a trophy elk population here it's a really large elk population that's important um for hunters uh but the implications of this land being taken from the park service and returned to what I believe are the right, is its rightful owner. I mean, this it's huge, which, which is of course, I mean, it would be a big blow to the park service. Um, so of course there'll be, you know, there'll be consequences. I believe it, it would be the right thing to do in the end. Uh, and of course I, I'm, I'm also confident that the Pueblo people have management plans in place for the land and its wildlife. Um, but yeah, I'm going to keep an eye on, I'm going to keep an eye on the case. I'm going to keep an eye on the story and see what happens. Cause it, it would, it will, this is a fight over land and all the wildlife that lives on it. And it's a lot of land. It's a very important ecosystem. Yeah. So it, it, it'd be really interesting. I, my hope is not, I mean, I'm pretty sure that, this claim will never be, will never pass. Like it'll never be accepted. They're never going to win. I'm pretty sure. I, but I feel like it'd be the right thing if they did. Yeah, I'm curious how long ago, like they brought this to court. Yeah, I feel like this is the kind of mm-hmm. case that's just going to like forever be in the court system. Yeah, the judge is just going to keep saying no, keep saying mm-hmm. no. Yeah, there was some sort of like statute of limitation, like the judge said that they should have brought this case to court in 1860. Or like, they had five years from the point that the land was taken to them, like 1860, like, ridiculous. And and so yeah, anyway, that was one of the arguments. I'm, I'm not even sure what the other arguments were, but it sounded ridiculous as far as the information I was able to obtain. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's a bummer. Yeah, it is. But like you said, not surprising. Right. Yeah. Um. So, um, I mean that that kind of. Well, I don't know how it, it vaguely relates to what we're going to talk about in the next two episodes, um, which are going to be like we're going to talk about the North American model of wildlife conservation or wildlife management. But we're going to break it up into two episodes just because it's a, a big topic and it's pretty foundational and we should have done it a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but it to do it justice and to, to discuss it properly, we just need to break it up into two episodes. So some listeners may have heard people refer to the North American model of wildlife management, but may only vaguely understand what it is um so that's what we're going to talk about you know what it is what its implications are and sort of how it's shaped uh conservation in north america and what the state of this model is currently um and what the future looks like for it um so why don't you go ahead and give us like an overview of the model Mm -hmm. so the model is organized into what we call seven pillars and they are basically 
foundational values or principles. The pillars themselves, the model itself is not a law, but it does guide policy and and legal actions, um, or rather it's meant to. That's that's the idea. And so the seven pillars, which we'll talk about more in part in the part two episode, um, but the seven pillars are wildlife or public trust. The second is elimination of market hunting or wildlife commerce. The third is allocation of wildlife is by law. Then wildlife can only be killed for a legitimate purpose. Wildlife is an international resource. Science informs wildlife policy and a democracy of hunting. And we'll explain these more when we get to them in the next episode. But those are the seven pillars. Those are the principles with which we, those are the principles that inform the way we manage our wildlife in in this country. It's actually in the U.S. and and Canada, but of course, we'll speak from our experience um, here in the U.S. So it it sounds a little bit vague, but uh, for this week, we're actually going to focus on the foundational principle that's represented in the first pillar, which is wildlife are a public trust. And that principle is actually what we call the public trust doctrine. Uh, the public trust doctrine. And it's basically the keystone component of the entire model. It's what all the other pillars rest on. And the basic principle is that wildlife in North America, wildlife in the U.S. can't be the property of any one person. You can't own wildlife the, the way, for example, you own a piece of land. So rather, as the public, we have access to wildlife as beneficiaries of a trust as beneficiaries of this natural resource. And the states or provinces in Canada are responsible for managing that resource. So they're responsible for managing the wildlife on behalf of us currently and and on behalf of the current and future public. And that's important that that wording is important because it's not just managing for the present day, it's also managing for the future. Um, And the states are what we call the trustees of the trust. So the states are the trustees and we are the beneficiaries. And as I said, the doctrine itself is not a law. It's the principle upon which legal decisions have been made. And all the wildlife laws in the U.S. and Canada have theoretically followed this principle. And and case law is supposed to refer to this principle um, in principle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, theoretically. Yeah. (laughs) And... Sort of like a lot of um, case law, which we will save that for another episode where we talk about law, but case law is basically law that has been set by some precedent. A lot of case law has sort of established um, certain certain parts of this principle, you know, depending on mm-hmm. certain areas of, of conservation. So like, some of this is like theoretically law, but it you know it depends on what uh, area of conservation you're talking about, which maybe will become more clear as we go through this entire model because it's our treatment of natural resources are not consistent with the public trust doctrine. Um, so interestingly, um, this is this is also case law is also known as like common law, and so we sort of consider the public trust doctrine 
to be this um, common principle for the commons. Um, I'm doing a really bad job explaining this, <laughs> but that it's it's to benefit everyone in a common way, not to benefit certain people. And this common law concept um, actually dates back to Roman law as far back as um, AD 529. And that Roman law ultimately had a base in Greek philosophy. And so I found the some of the specific language of this original Roman law, Roman law to be kind of could be pretty foundational. Um, and I think it's important to recognize the origins of this because for some reason in the United States, like we think that we're so far ahead of everyone with like the way we have this public trust doctrine, um, which I learned that that kind of thinking can be called futurism, where we think that we're like so advanced now. Oh, but anyways, that's it's sort of relevant. <laughs> but anyways, so the the language here's like a quote from some of this original Roman law from five twenty nine. By the law of nature, these things are common to all man, the air, running water, the sea, and consequently the shore of the sea. No one, therefore, is forbidden to approach the seashore, provided that he respects habitations, monuments, and the buildings, which are not like the sea, subject only to the law of nations. That's pretty interesting, because, I mean, we, like I said, we think that we follow this principle completely, but just by like comparing our current laws to this original Roman law, like it's almost like there was more freedom back in Roman times with this kind of thing <laughs> as far as access to, to land and resources. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, um, and then the English Magna Carta was actually based on this original Roman law as well, which established the monarch of England as the trustee and then the the citizens as the beneficiaries, just sort of like Mariana was talking about. And the monarch, uh, there's sort of this tendency for, and I, I mean, we're sort of taught it a lot of times and even just the lay person will say this, but we, we think that, um, oh, we're so different from, you know, England in, as far as the way we manage wildlife because, you know, the monarch owned the wildlife and could could abuse, you know, that ownership. But it really wasn't like that. The monarch had sovereign ownership over wildlife, which is basically what the states in the United States have. Um, it, it wasn't a proprietary proprietary ownership so basically the monarch was supposed to manage the wildlife on behalf of the citizens just like we do in the united states and uh, i mean of course there was plenty of room for abuse but that's the same way that it is today Mm -hmm. so it's kind of interesting when you look into this history that you realize we're really not that different especially because american law has its basis in english law and that's something else that people don't really realize. 
Um, so when we became a nation, the states basically replaced the monarch as the sovereign authority in the natural resource realm. And even though we, you know, took on that, um, same model, the, the public just trust doctrine wasn't an established law. It was just sort of this common knowledge principle, basically, um, that was supposed to guide judges to make decisions, and then that's how it became case law. So in the U.S., it wasn't really until 1842 that the states became legally established as trustee over some form of natural resource. So in a case um, known as Martin versus Waddell, the U.S. Supreme Court denied a landowner's claim to exclude others from taking oysters on his property. And the Chief Justice determined that lands under navigable water were held as a public trust by the state, which was based on his interpretation of the Magna Carta, which, like I said, the Magna Carta was based on that Roman law. So this was sort of the first case, the first case law where we see the state legally become established as a trustee in some part of land or natural resource management. And then so this decision, you know, established a legal precedent that helped solidify the principle more broadly as a piece of federal legislation in 1893 in a case known as Gere versus Connecticut. And um, we won't go into that more, but basically that had to do with um, this guy thinking that he could transport um wildlife and anyways um not important but just to to give you this timeline it was sort of the late mid to late 1800s that this really became legally established um as a as a principle the public trust doctrine and the court's decision in that 1896 case also ultimately established the federal government as a trustee when wildlife fell within the parameters of the constitutional responsibility. So it it can get pretty complex, like when you get into the legality of this, but um, the take home is that the public trust, the public trust doctrine has sort of become established in some case law in which the state or the federal government acts as trustee. And so because it's become established as case law in a lot of these, you know, they are held responsible. You know, before this became established legally, there wasn't really anything, you know, that they had to legally be responsible for. And like we discussed in the last episode when we were talking about some political stuff, you know, because of stuff like this, we have the ability to take the state or federal government to court for irresponsibly managing our wildlife as United States citizens. Um, so yeah, that's, that's sort of the background on how this became established legally. Um, but still there's, there's huge gaps in this legally speaking that 
are just a result of certain situations never, um, you know, coming to the court. Uh, and so there's still, in the future, there's still plenty of room for this public trust doctrine to become more established legally rather than just a principle alone. Right. Yeah. And there, as Jonah just said, there are a lot of challenges that haven't been fully addressed judicially or legislatively in the U S and these are societal and legal challenges that can and, and do in most cases undermine the principles of the public trust doctrine. And we're just going to focus on a few that we feel um, and other people who've written literature on it um, feel challenge the viability of the doctrine in the U.S. So the first challenge we wanted to uh, discuss is the question of wild animals held in captivity, so wild captives. And mostly captive wild wildlife captives that are managed as livestock, like on deer farms, and which have been restricted to that private property, usually by fences um, and things like that. At the moment, there's no widely addressed case law for questions of captive wildlife. Um, as we know, there's a monetary value that's put on this captive wildlife. And so that kind of commercialization or really skirting that commercialization does threaten the value or rather the principle of public ownership over the wildlife. So that's one of the questions that hasn't really been fully addressed and is complicated um, and varies state by state, as we know. Yeah, and I mean, so I live in Texas where this is probably, uh, this challenge to the public do trust doctrine is probably most prevalent, not probably, like no doubt, more than any other state the situation with captive native wildlife and exotic wildlife is um, a real challenge to this public trust, trust doctrine. And here in Texas, people are, oh, well, I won't go there. <laughs> it's, it's just interesting. Uh, you know, I asked my wildlife law instructor the other day, because I'm taking a wildlife law course, you know, how did is there some understanding of how Texas got to this point, like legally where people are allowed to keep white-tailed deer, which are a native species inside fences and have hunters pay to come into their fences. And I mean, just like you said, that's, that's commercializing native wildlife, whether they're like under permit held in captivity or, or not. I don't see how this aligns with the public trust, trust doctrine at all. Mm -hmm. um, because, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, in some states, like it's illegal to own uh, like native wildlife. Mm -hmm, yeah. And I was, anyways, I was just asking him, like, how did Texas get to this point legally? And it's just so different than other states like why aren't other states like texas so much and he's sort of like well you know we're very independent here in texas and we like our rights and stuff which yeah i think everyone knows that but 
that doesn't really address the question. That's that's not an excuse when you're doing things that don't follow our wildlife management system as much as they like to pretend it does. Because it's something, I mean, Texans are very proud of their, you know, diversity of wildlife and stuff, which is really just a coincidence where they geographically fall. It's nothing that has to do with what they've done. And so, you know, when we're talking about this idea that the citizens own the wildlife, but not in a proprietary sense, Mm -hmm. how can people own captive wildlife especially Mm -hmm. native species the exotic thing is a whole nother topic but as far as like white-tailed deer how do you get a like why is there even a permit to allow you to keep white-tailed deer and breed them Mm -hmm. because you're taking wildlife taking white-tailed deer that should be in the wild and putting them in a fence for you to manipulate and breed the way you want and so obviously it's this is a long standing tradition here but the fact that it became started at all I mean maybe it's cuz cuz there was a lack of case law back whenever this started but that's what I wanted to know and no one can really say like how did this start how did we get to this point of basically no return in Texas Mhm I think there's a a line I think there's a a line that's been blurred between a wild captive and a domestic and you know a there's a big difference between them and you can't treat wild captives like they're domestic because it's an, it's entirely, it's an entirely different dynamic. Um, but I, I feel like a lot of people treat them like they're domestics, which is, and I'm not by, by which I'm, I'm not, I'm, I don't mean they treat them like they're dogs and let them inside their house, but they treat them like they're, they're, they're like livestock. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like livestock. Um, and then it, it, that, that kind of flows nicely into um, the second challenge, which is, you know, and this is mostly about mostly about hunting, but what about the commercialization of wildlife that is legally upheld? And we will discuss this. We'll discuss this more in in our part two episode when we cover the other pillars, because as we mentioned, one of the pillars includes the elimination of market hunting and wildlife commerce. But for now, I, we felt it was important to note the ambiguity around the is- this issue and how unclear it is, you know, wh- where the line is drawn and how exactly we're, how exactly this reconciles with, with the pillar. Um, so that's, that's definitely an issue that needs to be addressed. And as far as other challenges, we were talking about land just now, uh, you know, if it, if access to our natural resources and we're going to wildlife in this case, if access to our wildlife is a public right as beneficiaries of this trust, what about when we're limited access to a piece of land where that wildlife is and therefore we can't access to wildlife. And in our early history in the U S the public could hunt on any land that was not enclosed private or not. That's changed a lot. Our land laws have changed a lot since then. It, and they continue to favor private landowners. This really butts heads with the principles of the public to- trust doctrine. 
it's it makes it difficult to access wildlife for hunting and viewing on the private land. And of course, you know, it, this it's out of our purview of this discussion to talk about um, you know, the the many um what's the word I'm looking for? The the nuances of, you know, private versus public land. But, you know, in its most simplest form, if we can't access that land and we can't access the wildlife, does it still belong to us? Do we, you know, still have equal, because the idea is everybody has equal access to the wildlife. Um, so that's that's one challenge. In many cases, landowners on this enclosed land, especially, will charge high fees to access that private land or even to go through the private land to access public land. And many people cannot afford these fees. So that further restricts the the demographic in the public who can access the, the wildlife on that land. Um, and the question is, is this a violation of our rights to access the assets of our trust? And I think that's an important question um, to address. When we get to the, uh, the government portion of it, what about the expensive hunting fees? Um, charged by public wildlife agencies. Um, it, is this equivalent to the trustee, the government, preventing or limiting the beneficiaries, us, from accessing the assets of their trust? And this isn't this isn't a this isn't a discussion about like where the where the money goes because we know um, that's a whole another discussion. But the fact that you have to pay for that. Another issue related to this is a lot of people actually some people actually bait wildlife. That, that are on public land over the boundary into private land where they can be hunted exclusively. And that kind of manipulation of the movement of the wildlife is, is pretty sketchy. It's definitely questionable. It's basically the same as like Jonah was saying, a game farmer, like a Texas game farmer or anywhere else, erecting a high impenetrable fence to trap the game inside. So that's definitely a question of equal access basically, that challenges the public trust doctrine. Yeah, and a lot of these, or not a lot of these, all of these questions and, and challenges to the public trust doctrine are things that haven't been addressed legally yet. And that's why if, you know, I'm just very, personally, I'm very critical of us thinking that we follow these values in this model you know that we follow those all seven pillars and right now we're only talking about the first one we you know the fact that all of these questions and challenges come up and the fact that they go against the public test trust doctrine like or, you know at its root means that we don't completely have this uh public trust in, in our wildlife and natural resources. And, it, you know, if, like I said before, it depends on what realm of wildlife you're talking about. It's very specific to different situations. So in some situations, yeah, anyone can get a hunting license if they can pay for it. So there's sort of like this, yeah, you can do this if, you can do this if, like that that kind of thing, which is, just yeah, it goes against this doctrine, and if it's not clear, a lot of these issues have to do with private land and private landowners because 
we've in the United States become more infatuated with landowner rights and landowner rights have expanded like exponentially. Um, I mean, honestly, I think all of these challenges have to do with all of these issues with private landowners or not private landowners, but private land ownership. It has to do with like sort of this ungodly sense of entitlement that we have in America if that makes sense, because, I mean, basically we're selfish. I mean, we know <laughs> that, but when you get to, when you start dealing with private land, people feel so entitled to the point where they even think that they own the wildlife on the land. And I mean, there's tons of court cases where people have brought a state government to court because they think that they should own the wildlife on their land or something. And I, like I said, I think that has to do with this growing sense of entitlement in our culture and also just this movement away from communities. And, um, we're gonna, we're gonna, in a couple episodes, have an episode about land ethics. And I think we'll talk more about this then, but I just wanted to kind of bring it up now because it's relevant to these challenges that are evident in our culture for these challenges to the public trust doctrine. Um, I really, I really like, you know, how you said that, um, in early America, we, the public could hunt on any unenclosed land. And so it's kind of ironic that we live under this fallacy in America that we're like the freest country or whatever, which, yeah, is true in a lot of uh, areas of our society. But, you know, clearly our freedoms in land access and access to natural resources has become more restricted, which is ironic also because landowners, especially like belligerent private landowners, think that because this is a free country, they should have the right to do whatever they want on their land. But it's not really that free because people are restricted to go on that land. So, again, I think that just demonstrates like this individual sense of entitlement as opposed to um, like the greater good of a community. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I feel like I'm babbling. No, no, no. It, it does make sense. There's um, it, there's almost a sense of territoriality that is not um, that does not foster the kind of community environment, as you're saying, that we have that has been established globally is good for wildlife conservation. Um, there has to be more of a of a community environment, a community family, almost, um, and that when you don't have that, when you have a territoriality and um, when you have neighbor against neighbor or neighbor against public, it, it really creates a problem for the wildlife and the land that they inhabit. And there's sort of a perfect storm of attitude here because on top of that, you also have what can be perceived as, as a growing apathy toward wildlife, which brings us to our next challenge, which is that the, the principle that wildlife is 
is owned by the public, that principle takes for granted that society values wildlife and its persistence into the future. Especially in the present day, the question is whether that principle might be a little anachronistic because right now we have, you know, what's become known as nature deficit disorder in our society, which is basically, it's pretty self-explanatory. Many of our children and adults as well, because this has been really a, mostly a, a, a problem for like two generations so far, um, have a deficit of nature. They don't spend enough time in nature. They don't understand nature. Uh, they especially believe that nature is separate from us, which is not at all true. And it's it's difficult to uh, maintain the belief um, or maintain the understanding that we are part of nature. And it's clear that we affect nature a lot, but it's sort of becoming blurry or, you know, even invisible to a lot of people um, in this in this country. So you have this sort of apathy on one end. And then, of course, for for generations upon generations, there has been an animosity toward wildlife in our country, um, especially in their potential to cause harm. Um, you know, off the top of our head, we can think of wolves and cattle ranchers, prairie dogs. So there are a lot of there are a lot of specific species um, and ecosystems that face this damage from this kind of animosity um, toward them. There, there are ways to reconcile that. We've we we know that. Um, so the question is, as public apathy toward wildlife continues to expand. Um, the question is, as public apathy toward wildlife continues to expand, will we in turn see a, a decrease in their value of maintaining wildlife as a public trust? Um, I feel that when I encounter people and I talk about wildlife as a public trust, um, just casually, I don't go you know, into a big spiel about the public tr trust doctrine, but a lot of people don't know that wildlife belongs to the public. Um, a lot of people don't know that that's even in question in some places. So there's definitely a, a lack of understanding that comes with this sort of um, lack of focus on wildlife and its habitats. And that's definitely, you know, it's there's been research done to show that nature deficit is, is a real thing. It's not just some, um, it's not just perceived. It's, a, it's an actual... Um, sociological phenomenon that continues to grow. I do a lot of work with kids um, at a nature education center, and I feel hopeful when I work with the kids, but I also, you know, I see a lot of nature deficit, um, mostly in their parents, actually, and that passes down from one generation to another. And of course, it's difficult for some people to access nature, um, especially if you live in a city and there are programs there are programs designed to help city dwellers to access nature more. And we definitely have to focus on that a little bit more so that we have an empathy toward wildlife and so that we value them as, as something we, we are also responsible for. Because obviously we know the states and the government are responsible for managing it as a natural resource, but we are also responsible as stewards of that natural resource. And as we said, we hold the government accountable for the way they're managing this resource. And we have to, you know, we have to know enough about it to be able to 
determine whether the government is, you know, being capricious or arbitrary in their management decisions. So, yeah, I think it's really important and valuable to think about this, like as a as a legal trust, like you like like you would a financial trust. Mm, yeah, you know. So in in a financial trust, as an example, if a trustee, the person who's managing, which I think we talked about this before, but yeah. it's worth saying again that you know if a trustee mismanages a, a trust that is the assets are going to be given to another the beneficiary, the beneficiary can sue the trustee for irresponsibly managing their trust. And so, you know, even though there's all this this case law sort of establishing wildlife as a public trust, there's a lot of states that don't have, like, statutory language incorporating this principle of the public trust doctrine. And so it could be pretty dangerous because a lack of legal precedent means that the states may not be accountable as a trustee. Mm -hmm. It's kind of curious to me how some of these states they've sort of slipped through the cracks and that they you know they don't have the statutory language and so ultimately they could legally get away with mismanaging resources sometimes yeah which of course many states are guilty of um or managing it in favor of you know some certain group of people or special interests. But then something else that's could is kind of scary to me is that where there is case law, the legal interpretation of that trust language can be pretty subjective. So it depends on the judge. Yeah. And you see this if you, you know, look at some of these um, cases throughout United States history that in which judges have upheld this principle of the public trust doc- public trust doctrine but in some you know decisions they've kind of gone against the public trust doctrine i think less so than those that have supported this principle mm-hmm. but it's just it's just kind of scary how it can be so subjective and i just think the whole point is that ultimately like we keep saying um that us as the beneficiaries, we need to recognize the government as our trustee and make sure that they're managing our wildlife responsibly and that they're accountable as our trustee in the policies that they establish. I mean, there's just, I could just think of so many examples and go on where, I mean, probably because a lot of, a lot of it's just my opinion, but when government agencies make policies that don't favor our access to wildlife or that favor certain groups over others, that is going to be illegal in a lot of cases. And because people don't really understand this, the legal precedents related to the public trust doctrine, there's not really a lot of people that will challenge the state government decisions and policies. So, yeah. Um, but then, of course, there's sort of this 
downside to the public trust doctrine. And it's um, known as the tragedy of the commons. So this is an idea that in a shared resource system, which is what we have because these resources, wildlife is, we share it as a, as citizens um, in a shared resource system overuse by some individuals can negatively in negatively impact others. So a lot of times this concept is used in support of the public trust doctrine, but I kind of see it in modern times as going against the public trust doctrine. So those in support of it say, well, in a, in a society where wildlife or natural resources aren't a public trust and only certain individuals have access to it, then they're going to abuse that access and then, you know, they're going to deplete populations or whatever and that's going to limit it for everyone else, access for everyone else. There's not as many resources available to others. So, and I, and I understand how that supports the idea of having this public trust, but I also see that as the public grows more apathetic towards wildlife, that the potential tragedy is for the public to devalue wildlife rather than overuse wildlife. And so, you know, the tragedy of the commons in this case is that the commons, the people, the general public, don't value wildlife. And so if they're not going to value wildlife, then it's not going to be managed properly because, you know, this is a democracy. And so if everyone is in favor of policies that don't, you know, support the continuation of wildlife populations and environmental health, then, then the resources are not going to last. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. I, I totally get where you're getting, get where you're coming from. It's, I tend to be a little more optimistic than you about the value <laughs> we still put on wildlife and its habitats, but I I do recognize that um, the growing apathy toward wildlife is a problem, and it and it will, as you said, reflect on our laws and policy. Um, that's how society works. That's how social systems work. Um, is you know we, we're all part of it. We all participate in the social system. And if our values change um, to the point that the majority of people no longer value wildlife, then that's going to reflect in everything we do and all the decisions we make, um, which, like you said, that's, that's a frightening thought. Um, and I, I think as far as the question of apathy and overuse, you know, they, they go hand in hand. You know, if you're if you don't care about wildlife, um, you'll either overuse it um, or you'll abuse it. And um, it's all just kind of a, a vicious cycle that feeds on itself. And we have the responsibility as beneficiaries of this public trust to care about the resources that in principle are open access. That's that's the whole principle about this, you know, this resource, wildlife is supposed to be open access. And we have to care about whether our current system is fair and just 
when it comes to this open access and when it comes to access to this resource. At, the more we care, the better, the more we care, the more capable we are of holding the count, the, our government accountable for systemic problems that threaten the public trust doctrine. Because when it comes down to it, this, this is a systemic problem. Yes, um, individuals must take responsibility for themselves, but it's also easier for individuals to make the right choice when this system allows them to do so, when they feel that they, they're supported in that way. So, yeah, I think the, the question of the public trust doctrine, I think, uh, of course, you know, it, of course, it'll never be as pure, I think, as it was originally intended. It was almost a little bit utopian, uh, the original intention. But I don't think that means we can't still adhere to it. Uh, I don't think it means it's entirely anachronistic. I think we can still apply it to present day and to our management, especially our adaptive management that we that um, we're getting better and better at doing. Well, that's arguable, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think it's important for us to remember the public trust doctrine when it comes to managing our wildlife. I think even just remembering it as a principle. Um, even if you don't know the case law, just remembering it as a principle will enable our managers to make better decisions going forward. Um, because I think often, you know, really our, our, our point here is that it's, it's under, it's, it's, it's been threatened by a lot of challenges and issues. And there seems to be a lack of urgency about the threats to the public trust doctrine and, you know, whether you care about wildlife or not, I'm assuming that everybody listening to this does. Um, <laughs> but whether you do or don't, you should be concerned about that in terms of our democracy and in terms of the power we have as the public and holding our government accountable. And the more we care, the better things will be for, for wildlife in our country. Yeah, because the wildlife in our country belongs to you. It belongs to me. It, it's the assets in our trust mm -hmm. and it's really silly to not care about the assets in your trust. Yeah. Um, and it, that doesn't mean that everyone has to be a wildlife biologist, <laughs> but I think that it's when you realize, when you realize that maybe people will value wildlife more. I mean, they should be valuing them for their like ecosystem, the way they play a part in an ecosystem and benefit humans before they value them solely for being assets in a trust. But, mm -hmm. but maybe, you know, that learning something like this will give people a wake up call, be like, wow, I didn't know that I had a, a stake in this, that um, I have a right to these wildlife. They are mine as much as they are yours. Yes. And, not in a property sense. <laughs> um, yeah, so that is just the first pillar of mm -hmm. the North American model, but it's it's foundational, like yeah, we said early on. And everything else in the model, all the other pillars that we're going to talk about in the next episode, they build upon this idea that wildlife is belongs to the public and is managed by states 
in a trust-like form, basically. So today's sustainability tip is to plant and maintain native plants um, at your house or on property where you live because it's going to be more sustainable as far as water use goes because those native plants belong in the area where you live. Um, So if they're used to precipitation patterns and stuff like that compared to ornamentals and exotics that are not designed to live in generally not designed to live in the environment you might be living in. So they require a lot more water, um, more work, just tending them. And sometimes they could just be harmful to the environment or to native wildlife. You know, it depends on what plants we're talking about. Yeah. But then planting native vegetation also just is better for native wildlife. And so the more native landscaping you do, um, the more wildlife you're going to see, like butterflies and birds. And I think that everyone likes that. Um, So yeah, that is what you should do if you are landscaping or you own land or something. Manage it like the surrounding landscape, basically. Awesome. Um, Okay, so as usual... If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. So you should feel free to connect with us on Facebook or Instagram. We are at Conservation Chronicles on both platforms. You can also email us at conservationchronicles at gmail.com with any questions or comments. Uh, And you can visit our website at conservationchronicles.podbean.com. That is where you'll find other episodes Oh, and please rate and review us on your podcast listening app um, just so we know how we're doing. You know, just let us know what you think. um, And if you have any ideas, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. And stay tuned for the next episode where we'll finish talking about the North American model. Bye.